This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. As promised a couple weeks back on today's program, we're going to visit with an old friend of ours, James Eugenio. He is, uh, well, he's got quite a resume. He's been an educator, recently retired after 30 years in Los Angeles. But he's also been an author. He's also been a, uh, taken part in that excellent Oliver Stone production you may have seen, JFK Re- Revisited Through the Looking Glass. He's got a couple books under his belt. He's formed a couple of organizations. And his website, Kennedy, kennedysandking.com, we highly recommend to you. Um, I think this is something like his, he might be the record-breaking, 13th or 14th appearance on this program, and uh, we're glad to have him back. And so I have to say, welcome back, uh, James Eugenio. Thank you so much. And uh, let me, if you don't mind, let me get in the plug for my latest book. Please do. Okay, which is an anthology with four other authors. It's called The JFK Assassination Chokeholds. Okay. okay, and the reason it's called that is because we tried to pick like nine or ten topics that the other side would find insurmountable, okay, to argue in any kind of a debate, all right? Okay. And so that was done with three other lawyers, uh, plus a guy named Paul Blue, who was in JFK Revisited. Okay. That's the documentary you're talking about. Right. Uh, I wrote the screenplay for that, and Paul was our guy on the Secret Service and the Chicago plot. So that's out. That just came out a, a couple of weeks ago. All right. Well, okay. Uh, I can, I can... And I, I was also at, as you mentioned, the very nice uh, Cyril Weck conference at Duquesne, which I think was from the 15th to the 17th. All right. And that had a lot of, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin was there. Rob Reiner was there. John Newman was there. Tink Thompson was there. Okay. Uh, Jeff Morley was there. All right. And that was a very, a very interesting three days, to say the least. Yes. Yes. I was supposed to be there, but didn't make it. So hope we're going to do a little bit of a redressing of that today. Talking about your topic, which I was very keen to hear in, in Pennsylvania. You titled it The Death of JFK and the Rise of the Neocons. And that is one meaty topic, my friend. Let's 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 talk about what you um, what you exposed to the audience. Well, what I did was I tried to take an historical viewpoint on this topic. Okay, and and what I tried to do is tie uh, Kennedy, all right, his foreign policy with Roosevelt's foreign policy. And I tried to show that Truman had changed Roosevelt's foreign policy. And Truman flashes forward to a guy that nobody ever talks about in the JFK assassination community, a guy named Henry Jackson, who was a senator from Washington. Yes. But what I found out and what I never expected to discover is that the neocons came from Henry Jackson's office. Okay, and Henry yes. Jackson was a Democrat. Yes. So here you have a Democrat fueling the neocon revolution. And some of the people that came from 
uh, Jackson's office were very, very prominent players in the Reagan and Bush White House. Okay, and some of them were, like, for example, Richard Pearl. Another one was Paul Wolfowitz. Another one was uh, Gene Kirkpatrick. Another one was Elliot Abrams. Another one was Frank Gaffney. I was really, really surprised to find this out. Okay, but see, this is how far the Democratic Party had shifted from the death of John F. Kennedy. You know, if you ask me, I don't think this would have happened if Kennedy had lived. Now, in a nutshell, to flash backwards a little bit, you can say that the first triumph of the neocons was under Gerald Ford when they um, got rid of Nelson Rockefeller as vice president, and they replaced... Kissinger from his national security advisor spot with a guy named Brent Scowcroft. And then Rumsfeld and Cheney, Rumsfeld was, became the Secretary of Defense, and then I think Cheney became the Chief of Staff. Okay, that was the first triumph of the neocons, but it really went into effect after they defeated Carter in 1980, and these people that I just named went into the Reagan administration. To give you just one example, Richard Pearl is the guy who is given credit for detonating, you know, demolishing the Iceland summit between Gorbachev and Reagan. Okay. Now, that that was an aspect I I was unaware of that, Jim. I remember when that happened very well, and my recollection Mm -hmm. of it was that Reagan was determined to get the... um, his strategic defense initiative forward, and Gorbachev wasn't having it. And that was my understanding of where it went no, south. No, 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 no. Okay. It, Reagan really was tempted by If you look back at it, you know, almost everybody's forgot about it. Yeah. But if you look back at it, it was a very good deal. Gorbachev was going to cut all nuclear weapons by 50%. Right. Okay. Which would have been, I believe, you know, a, a really good deal. But it was Pearl who was one of the prime people, you know, who went ahead and did everything he could to go ahead and make sure that it didn't go through. Now, Reagan, of course, was very impressed with Gorbachev. Not very many people know this, okay? But he kind of really liked Gorbachev, all right? And he wanted to deal with him, all right? And, but there were these neocons in the White House and also Kissinger and Nixon, who we called in. And they all advised them that Gorbachev was just another Russian apparatchik, which he was not. Okay, and so Reagan ended up taking that advice. But Richard Pearl was a very adept infighter, okay, in the administration. All right, and he was one of these guys who, if you can believe it, the neocons actually argued that there was a possibility that the Russians could win a nuclear war. <laughs> right. Like as anybody, crazy as that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> like anybody can win a nuclear war. <laughs> this is why they hated Robert McNamara. You know, because Robert McNamara, they thought, and I know this is going to be hard to believe, but it's true. 
they did not like McNamara because they thought he was too much of a technocrat. Uh-huh. Okay, because McNamara is the guy who more or less originated MAD, which was the acronym for Mutually Assured Destruction. Right. And that was the philosophy that the American Defense Department followed, that if both sides were going to destroy each other, they wouldn't go to nuclear war. Okay, but Henry Jackson began this idea that the Russians could win a nuclear war. And his acolytes, like Richard Pearl, okay, went along and argued that point of view, you know, which I believe is completely nutty, all right, well, but they actually, well, they actually yeah, believed in it. Right, right. If I can just take a very slight detour, I have to just em- embellish this with the notion that when in the 1970s, they did some. Uh, they they sent a probe out to Mars and discovered that Mars was really cold, unusually, because every so often it has these dust storms. Carl Sagan took a look at that and then took a look at what would happen in the wake of a nuclear exchange and said, "You know what? That would just the the cooling of the Earth would cause a nuclear winter, and it would be disastrous." The Pentagon's response was to restudy it and go, "Well, it'd be more like a nuclear autumn." You can't make this stuff up. What's, what's the difference between a nuclear autumn and a nuclear winter? Well, you could probably grow a few crops in an autumn. I don't know, you know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But <laughs> you're, this is, you're, you're, I remember these names so well from 20 years ago doing this show as we were ramping up to the horrible war we had in Iraq and Wolfowitz and, and Pearl and Abrams and all these guys were playing a role in this. We have to, like, if we run the, the tape backwards from Bush 43 into Bush 41, where these guys were played a role, back to Gerald Ford in the wake of Nixon. And yes, Rumsfeld and Cheney are the, leading the neocon charge in the new administration. And yes, cleaning house of anybody that did, they didn't think was as uh, right-wing and right-thinking as they were. Mm-hmm. See, the neocons, the, neo, the whole idea of this okay, was that the United States needed to have a more aggressive foreign policy, okay, that somehow we weren't asserting ourselves enough in the world, and the Russians posed a very formidable threat to the United States, okay? And this is why they didn't like Kissinger, because Kissinger and Nixon originated this... uh, well, they actually got it from Kennedy, this idea of detente, Uh that you could relax tensions, Uh all right? And so they didn't like that. And this is one of the reasons that they signed like... Now, let let me just pose your audience this question. If you're to the right of Henry Kissinger, how far right are you? Okay. <laughs> we'll have more to say about that when we talk about the obituary of Henry the K later in the program. I mean, really, yeah. this is that you're like off the charts. Yeah. If you're to the right of Henry yeah. Kissinger. Agreed. Okay. All right. But that's what these guys were like. And then eventually, of course, the neocon movement went into and grandfathered something called PNAC, the Project for the New American Century. And these guys were the advocates of a war in the Middle East, in in Iraq. Okay? Yeah. But once it came true, 
and it turned out to be a disaster, okay, then they tried to wipe their hands of it, and they dropped the website and everything, okay, and it, it kind of disappeared because it was really the, the hallmark of the neocons had turned to dust because Iraq turned out to be a debacle, you know, of, of, the, of the first magnitude. Right, and it really showed, I believe, that these guys really didn't understand the world. That, you know, that the, that the neocons were essentially, you know, all bark, but no intellectual bite. They didn't really know what the heck was really going on. All right. Uh, I mean, anybody who could, you know, say what they did, that somehow the Russians could win a nuclear war against the United States, I mean, I mean, really, that, that's so far out, you know, that, you know, it's, it's kind of like science fiction. But that's what these people were about. You know, the guy named Wolfowitz is, was one of the great advocates right. of going into Iraq, all right, and then making up that whole story about WMD, okay, right. that somehow this is the reason, which, of course, there was none. Okay, there was no were no weapons of mass destruction. Well, that Wolf, was just a pretext. Wolfowitz later admitted that's that's what, that's how we that's what we used to sell the war. You're, you know something? You're exactly right, and not that many people know that. Wolfowitz later admitted that that was a pretext sure. to start the war. Now, can you imagine that? Six hundred fifty thousand people dead, and then you later admit. Oh, we really didn't believe that. We just wanted the start of war. Okay, what do you tell those people, those families, those 650,000 people that got killed for nothing? You know, I mean, this, this is crazy. Well, when you say for nothing, you have to bring up the question is, was it really for nothing or did it achieve its goals of turning the Iraqi oil fields over to, um, uh, <laughs> to, to the, big, the seven sisters that, you know, rule the world of oil? And, uh-huh. and, and spend a lot of money for the military, which is always enjoys that, cashing those checks. Right. So, to me, to me, the Iraq War is just the same old, same old of the Vietnam War. It was just, it, it was, it was there to make money. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that's that that's very, you know, that's a very very telling point about the neocons. Okay, that you you would bring up the Vietnam War, because. It's like these people didn't learn anything. From the, the Vietnam War was something they wanted to forget. Okay, they, uh, you know, what was that term that Bush one used? We, we've licked the Vietnam syndrome. Right. Isn't that something like what he said. Right. You know, by invading Grenada, right. we got our, we got, we're, <laughs> we've we've loosened up the military again to go invade small tiny countries. Right. Keeps keeps you the know, boys in shape. The Vietnam War should have been a massive lesson, you know, to anybody who really was interested in history and, and, and the political scheme. You know, it, it, it should have said, you know, you should not enter into a conflict unless you know, have a good idea of what's going to happen as a result of that conflict. Okay? Well, And that, that was a question that Johnson... And Nixon really didn't ask themselves. You know, Kennedy was getting out. He had faced the reality that this is pointless. You know, we're, we're getting out of here. Okay, after I get reelected, I can't do it until I get reelected, but we're getting out. All right? So with the rock, it was almost like 
you know, they didn't they didn't study what could possibly happen. You know, and for all intents and purposes, you know, the the Iraq war was just, you know, for the people of Iraq, I mean, it might have helped the, the military industrial complex, but I believe that they left it in a worse position than they were before the conflict began. Well, I I know that shortly after the second Iraq war, actually six months later, the power was on for something like three hours a day in the country, whereas after the first Iraq war, Saddam had the had the power lines back up within months. So <laughs> it, did, it did not turn out well for the Iraqi people, that's for sure. No, no. Um, it, it, was, it was just, I, I, I believe, and there's some people who disagree with me, um, but there's some people who think that it was an even greater disaster than the Vietnam War. I don't believe it was. I, I think you have to go a long way to get worse than the Vietnam War. Right. But some people, like John Newman's boss, Odom, General Odom, he actually thought it was even worse than the Vietnam War because what it did is it reignited in a in a funny way, you know, the whole Islamic fundamentalist movement. Okay? And which which was another point that I tried to make in my talk at this at Cyril Wex's conference that see Saddam was not an Islamic fundamentalist. Oh no, no, anything but. And and he was not a terrorist either. Okay? So I that's another reason why I don't think these people understood what they were doing. Okay? Because then then if you remember this then we tried to dislodge another guy in the Middle East who was not an Islamic fundamentalist, Assad, in Syria. Okay? And this was very, very interesting because... Yeah, talk a bit Hillary about that. Trump. Talk a bit about that. That's a fascinating little war that doesn't get a lot of publicity. But, but there was an effort to unseat uh, a guy who was not anything like an Islamic fundamentalist. He was, he was a bit of a, of a dictator, sure, but that's pretty much par for the course in that part of the world. <laughs> right. It's, so, I mean... <laughs> yeah. What was really, well, in your opinion, what the hell was really going on there? Was that just more neocon uh, generate war for money? See, see, th this is this is from what I've been able to piece together. Hillary Clinton, who, if you recall, was the uh, Secretary of State. Yes. Okay. First, suckered Obama <laughs> into going ahead and using NATO against Africa which I think is one of the craziest things, you know, if you really think about it. You know, uh, right. NATO to bomb Libya? <laughs> you know, JFK would have been turning over in his grave. He uh -huh. had a very special interest in Africa. You know, he would have never done something like that. All right, but Obama got suckered into doing it. Then she wanted him to go ahead and invade, use American might, to do the same thing with Assad, okay? You know? Now, what's so weird about this is that, and, and you have to really think about this for a minute. This Obama would not okay the overt invasion. And in fact, he actually wrote an article, I believe, for either Harper's or Atlantic Monthly, saying that he was proud not to have done it. What he didn't say is that he secretly approved a covert action 
by the CIA uh-huh. called Operation Timber Sycamore, okay, which was one of the biggest CIA covert actions, you know, in the last 20 or so years. I think it was initially budgeted at $1.2 billion. Right. Now, what's so bizarre about this is that the CIA then went ahead and assembled an army of Islamic fundamentalists. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Among, among the moderate groups they were touting at that time to go in there and get rid of Assad was a little group known as ISIS. Right. And they not only hired them, they equipped them and they trained them. Okay? Right. So right. here's my question. What are we doing in bed <laughs> with these people who hate the United States to overthrow a guy who's a secularist who wears a suit and tie right. in public right. to lead his country? I mean, you know, no. if, if you're going to overthrow everybody you think is a dictator in the Middle East, then you're going to overthrow just about everybody. Yeah, okay? Pretty much. <laughs> but, but why this guy? You know, why this guy of all people? You know, all right? I, do you have an answer for and, that? And because I don't. I'm not done, though. I'm not, I, I okay. want to say the last twist to this crazy story. Okay. Who ends up rescuing Assad? The Russians! <laughs> the Russians. Right. <laughs> I mean, really? Right. How much more bizarre can you get not much. than that? Okay? Yeah. And, 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 and let me get even worse. People like Biden and people like Kerry later spoke about this and because they were asked you know what are the russians because well they don't want isis to be close to the russian border that's why they went in and they helped us <laughs> hmm. huh. okay so this is how crazy the neocons were and they even influenced the democratic party with things like that. Well, let, let's, you know? let's go back a little bit. You're talking about the passing of Kennedy led to LBJ, led to the, the fiasco in, in Vietnam, and afterwards we got into Richard Nixon. And we'll have more to say about him and Henry the K and his bombing campaigns, I believe, shortly. But Nixon comes, comes in, and he, he with, starts opening up detente with the Russians and starts um, opening the door to China. And... I think it's probably fair to say, fell foul of the more rightist elements in the party and in the country. And then you wind up with Watergate. And you and a lot of people like Peter Dale Scott have, have, have documented that there is there are many strains of linkage between the JFK assassination and what happened in Watergate, which got rid of Nixon, which gave us the neocons. Right. I think that's pretty accurate. All right. And I think that... Um, I think that a lot of people um, who fostered the neocon, the neocons at the beginning, did not appreciate or like the fact that the United States was dealing with communists. Okay, which they were uh, when when Nixon went to China and when he went to Moscow. Okay, they were they were dealing with communists, and they. And people like Paul Nitze, who's one of the fathers of the neocon movement. Yes, I, w- I want to talk right. about Team B in a minute, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> they really, really didn't like that. Yeah. Okay. And on top of that, 
when Carter won the election, they thought that Carter was also too soft, you know, on the Soviet Union because he went, he got that agreement with Brezhnev. Okay, um, I think it was was it uh, Salt Two or something like that. Probably. Okay, and they and and they they really didn't like that. I mean, they really didn't like that. And well, so what happened is that when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, which I believe I think was was a seventy nine that that happened or something like that. A little earlier, okay. I think, but yeah, about yeah. They they said, see, we told you. Okay, you were suckered by this guy, but look at those Russians, you know, invading uh, invading Afghanistan. Okay, and so what happens? Brzezinski goes ahead and he arranges this terrific covert action. And who does who are one of the guys that he sends to the Afghanistan? Is a guy named Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> And so, right. And so, trained so, to shoot shoot weapons while they were at it, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Brzezinski didn't care about that, though. He never thought. Well, wait a minute. The cure might be worse than the wound. Okay, what am I doing here? I'm putting these, you know, these uh, Islamic fundamentalists against the Russians, hoping they'll defeat the Russians, and not thinking. Well, wait a minute. Am I am I spawning something that is going to be kind of unpredictable? <laughs> yeah, well, I, he he was, but it didn't, it didn't really matter to him. Right. Okay. And so this then became another neocon cause. Uh, it was a it was a twofer. You were the Russians. You you were opposing the Russians in Afghanistan. At the same time, you were beginning the new menace, which is going to be Islamic fundamentalism. Right. All right. And I wouldn't quite classify Brzezinski as a neocon, but he was pretty close to being one, right. you know? Well, I, I want to carken back to when the Soviet Union went belly up, circa 1990. I remember having a, uh, a, a conversation with a friend of mine, like, well, there could be a giant peace devon in here, but you know what? What they're going to look for is another enemy. And who's that going to be? My friend looked at me and said, the Arabs. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. I think that that took the place of it. But to, to harken back for a minute to the '70s, you mentioned Paul Nitze, and he he headed a theme uh, team uh, something they called Team B. They claimed that all this detente was bad for us, and it was you know the Russians really were still intent upon dominating the world. So they re, they quote reevaluated unquote all these CIA reports to come up with a new idea that actually Russia is very strong and it's very aggressive and it's going to take the world over unless we stop them. And that, right. that, that, that that's exactly right. Yeah. And they took one guy that, and made Paul him Paul Nitze. Yeah. Paul Nitze was one of the most influential behind the scenes people in the whole neocon movement. Right. All right. And he and a few other of these people like Gene Kirkpatrick, okay, fostered this movement that said that we had completely underestimated the Russian threat, okay? And what we needed to do was, and I, I think this was the first time in history it happened, they were allowed to go into the CIA and actually rewrite reports. Right. Okay? And 
they went ahead and they went these wildest exaggerations that you could find, okay? And this became what you just mentioned, something called Team B. And this was a big major step in the neocon movement, was this reevaluation of the Russian military, all right? And I, I can't stress how unprecedented this was. And they did it with the help because at that time, I believe, George Bush was the head of the CIA. And it was through his auspices that they were allowed to go in, okay, and rewrite these CIA reports on the threat that the Russians were supposed to have right. posed. Right. Well, and, and of course, this was highly influential uh, once Ronald Reagan and George Bush became the president and vice president. And we then embarked upon this huge military buildup, you know, no, no prices too high to pay for defense, blah, blah. And uh, Russia, in the meantime, was, as previously estimated by the CIA and others, imploding. It was like the country was just falling apart. I can testify to this because Chance put me in Russia in 1990, shortly before it, it, the USSR, shortly before it existed. And what I, one vivid memory is driving around with this, this Russian friend in Leningrad, and there was a, a Volkswagen-sized pothole in the middle of the road. <laughs> and alongside of it was the axle of a vehicle that had been de-axled by hitting the pothole. And my right. friend Yuli looked at me and said, Russian roads. <laughs> I thought, this is not a nation that's going to take the world over. Right. Oh, let, let me, um, I, I, we needed to fill in something when we just discussed. Yeah. That, was, that group was called the Committee on the Present Danger. Yes. And Paul Mitzi, Gene Kirkpatrick, and many of those neocons um, that went into the Reagan administration originated with that group. They despised Carter, okay, and they called, uh, Paul Nitze made this comment about Jimmy Carter, that he was McGovernism without McGovern, <laughs> okay, all right, and, and so then, of course, when Carter was, you know, I mean, talk about bad luck, first he gets the invasion of Afghanistan, then he gets the uh, hostage crisis that went on for over a year, and that's what brought Reagan into the White House, and that's what ushered in, let's say, wave two of the neocons sure. into the White House. Sure. All right? And I can't, you know, it's very hard to describe how far right, you know, uh, they drove foreign policy. I mean, because... In my opinion, and I, I've always maintained this, Johnson and Nixon completely altered Kennedy's foreign policy, but the neocons buried it. Yeah. I mean, it was utterly demolished, you know, when, when these guys came in, to the point that today Kennedy's foreign policy, what he was trying to do, might as well be in a museum. <laughs> okay, because yeah. that's that's really how thunderously it was completely detonated, you know, by the by the neocon revolution. Right. See, see, what Kennedy was trying to do, 
in addition to detente with Russia and Cuba, okay, he was trying to democratize it the best he could some things in the third world, all right? Um, he was trying to foster, you know, movements in the third world, like, for example, the non-aligned movement, all right, which was made up of people like Gamal Abdel Nasser, yeah. Ahmed Sukarno, all right, uh, of Egypt and, and, and Indonesia, and Nehru of India. See, the, the neocons didn't like this at all, all right? Um, they didn't really like the non-aligned movement, and they were opposed to people like Sukarno, you know, Nehru, and, uh, and, and Nasser. You know, and so this is another thing that, you know, they really did not look upon with any kind of sympathy or generosity at all. And so this is why I say the things that Kennedy was trying to do, and Kennedy was also a believer in nuclear nonproliferation and arms right, control. Right. You know, so these things all went by the wayside, you know, with, with the neocons. All right, because they really wanted a very aggressive kind of foreign policy. They wanted the United States to be the, the sort of like the big bully, you know, on the block. All right. And in my opinion, you know, it, it kind of backfired uh, in, in a big way because, see, Kennedy always used to say, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. All right. All right. The neocons didn't believe in that. They believed the United States should be making history. Yes. You know. And so what has happened now, I believe, is what Kennedy feared was going to happen. We've driven Russia and China into each other's arms. You know, and they formed not just BRICS, but this road and beltway initiative. Right. That is now, I believe, going to change the whole economic calculus of, of the world. I really believe that that is what's going to happen. Hmm. Okay. And, and so what Kennedy feared is now, I believe, going to come to pass. You know, well, let's... after a series of disasters. Good Lord. I mean, Putin always used to talk about this. He still talks about it. You know, look at Libya. Look at Iraq. Right. Look at Afghanistan. Everything the United States touches turns to dust. <laughs> you know? And I have to say, with those three examples, he has a very good point. Well, it's hard you to know? argue. Jim, we've got to take a short break. Let's do that. It's a fascinating conversation. We're going to have more of it. But uh, let's just take a short break and, and then uh, uh, put some public service announcements and we come back.